That's it. A very good cold morning to all of you. There's a verse in the Old Testament, and you can work this out for yourself. It goes like this. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You seen the lines on the floor? They weren't here last week. <laughs> Got nothing to do with that, of course, but um, there's a Bible verse for everything, isn't there? <laughs> if you look hard enough for it. But, uh, yeah, oh, cool. Well, where are we? What are we up to this morning? We're in Luke chapter 9, as far as the Bible is concerned. And uh, over the past three weeks, we sort of re-entered Luke after the Christmas break. And uh, John broke into that with um, a message on healing and how important that is. So we need to hold on to that. That's what God wants in his church, is to see people healed physically as well as spiritually. Um, and we, we should be praying for the power of that to be manifest when we come together. So we had a long healing. Last week, it was Steve spoke to us about uh, how important it is to be humble. And, um, and actually, that's a process of learning how to be more like Jesus and become more like him. It's not, it's not something that comes naturally. Well, at least I find that so anyway. It's something we have to really, really work at and... Um, really work at, to be humble. But it's such a powerful characteristic. The kingdom, the kingdom of God becomes more mobile when humility is active in, in, in that sense. And also it, it enables us to, to, in ourselves, to champion God's grace that the fact that we can actually serve others and forget ourselves. There's a whole spiritual blessing in that in being able to lay down ourselves and reach out to others. And that's not something I find easy, but it's there. So um, we remember that message last week, the need for humility. Two very powerful things we should be continuing to look at in the church healing and humility. But today, in Luke 9, and we're going to read the verses uh, together, beginning at verse 51. <clears throat> I suppose today, well, I was thinking about Luke 9, there's so, there's so much in it. There's lots of bits and pieces in it, isn't there, really? There's the, there's the Jesus gave his disciples power to go out and heal the sick and preach the kingdom of God. Uh, he told them how to do that, and he gave them guidance how to do it. Those sort of things. And Jesus spoke about how, how important it is to follow him and to look to him. And um, then there was that occasion up the mountain, the transfiguration, where the countenance of Jesus' face changed, and um, it became different, as it were. Uh, and they saw Jesus in a whole new, different light. But what they did see, too, was the fact that what God had been doing through history was coming to fruition. The fact that Jesus was going to do something very amazing, very awful, but very amazing. His death on the cross was a really awful thing in the terms of humanity, but it is the power of salvation to those who will actually believe it. It's the means of righting all the wrongs in the world. It's the means of bringing in a powerful new world and experience with God 
the fact that Jesus died for us and gave his life again, and the value of the fact that death couldn't hold him, and he rose again from the dead, and he ascended back into heaven, which is a point where we pick up our reading this morning in verse 51. Uh, Verse 51 of Luke 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. The taken up there is largely referring to having died and being raised from the dead, he was going to ascend to heaven. But you see, his ascension took in all that was going to happen beforehand because through that, God was going to exalt him. And yet, we find here that he set his face towards Jerusalem because Jerusalem... Jesus was, had known in his spirit and in his life that he would go to the cross. He would suffer and die for the sin of the world. He would suffer and die there and give his life, and that giving his whole life for us. You can imagine the pushback that might have been in his spirit. I think you can get a little bit of that when you read the prayer that Jesus prayed. He said, if it be willing, take this cup from me, but not as I will, but as you will. And in that sense, there was always a pushback all the time. And um, just for those who are interested in what you find, if you read this chapter through time and time again, there's so much pushback in this chapter. What Jesus said when he sent his disciples out, he said, if they won't won't receive you, you'll get that pushback. Shake the dust off your feet. They are then responsible. There's a pushback there. And so as you read through the chapel. But Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem... You can imagine those moments in the quiet when he was thinking, what really is that going to be like? But it was that one day in history, the greatest day in history, when he went to the cross. The second bit of that, verse 51, he said, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know, the Holy Spirit wants us to read the face of Jesus. This is a colloquialism. Because it's saying, in everything, this great thing that he was going to do, it was intentional, and it had purpose, and it was going to really be the answer for the world's need. He set his face. It was saying to us, he wasn't going to give up on this. And God wants us to read that face. i tell you why. Because Isaiah in the Old Testament of the Bible talks about the face of Jesus. His face was marred more than anyone's so that he became unrecognizable. Today we talk so much about face recognition, this technology that's coming in. I just wondered if it could have read the face of Jesus and identified him if you pass that technology over his face. It said he was unrecognizable. So the Holy Spirit wants us to read the face of Jesus. So as we begin this this morning, because within his face, we see a determination to do something for us that we couldn't do ourselves. And he went for it. He did it. Because it's that which we pick up later in the character of discipleship as we follow Jesus. So in verse 52, he sent messages ahead of him, who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face, here we have it again, his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, 
They saw it, you see. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell or call fire? Come down from heaven and consume him. <laughs> what? <laughs> so it was Peter who drew the sword and cut off the high priest's ear. What are these guys Jesus is calling his disciples? They're real characters, aren't they? Real characters. But that's not the heart of Jesus because we find that he rebuked them for that character. We will find rebukes in the Bible and they're good for us when we get it wrong. I get it at home, I'm sure you, all the husbands get it and the wives get it too. Sometimes you get it, you know, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and no, we shouldn't have done either. We get those rebukes and they're so necessary, aren't they? But here Jesus rebukes them for that attitude, for that sort of thing. In verse 15, uh, sorry, verse 57. I'll be fine, I'm saying help myself here. Right, verse 55. He turned and rebuked them. Verse 56. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say well to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And it's those last few verses that I really want to look at this morning, starting with this guy who said, I will follow you wherever you go. What are these characteristics of true discipleship? It's possible to be a Christian and not a disciple. It's possible to say, I will follow you, Jesus. I, will, I believe in you and I accept you as my saviour for what you've done for me and just leave it there. It's possible. It's possible to be a Christian and not to be a disciple. But... These verses call us to be disciples, not only believers and those who have accepted Jesus as Saviour, but to follow him, to follow him, to be an example. That's what these verses are saying. Judas was close to Jesus as a person could ever. He was close as a person could get. He got with him most days, I expect, and in his presence, and yet he betrayed him. Betrayal of Jesus, though, is not the end of the road, and restoration is a very real experience. I believe Jesus could, Judas could have turned around and said, Lord, I'm sorry for that. I know you accept me. I've heard all that you said, and I know that I can be forgiven. Peter was in the same place, his disciple Peter. He betrayed Jesus. He disowned him, but he found the way through. He found that way through in Jesus. 
And look what Peter became. Look at that tremendous sermon he preached on the day of Pentecost. You see, he found his way through. So it's possible to be a, a Christian and not a disciple. And Peter found that root of discipleship, found it by finding what Jesus can do for us and following him through thick and through thin. Jesus, or God, forgives and he forgets. The thief that was crucified alongside Jesus, he became one who trusted in Jesus and believed in him to do something for him, but he couldn't be a disciple. That was just a physical thing. He didn't have the opportunity to go to any friend of his and say, I'm sorry. He didn't have the opportunity to pursue his new life as he found in Jesus. It's possible to be a believer and not a disciple. Being a true disciple is characterized by obedience and commitment in our daily lives, and we should be prepared for significant changes in our behavior. As a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, that is probably the one thing that we appreciate, that he helps us to change. He helps us to leave those things behind, which not only offend God and Jesus, but he helps us to move on from that so that they won't hinder us in our own lives, so that we might know true blessing. You know, those sort of things about being disciple, things in our behavior, our thought patterns, our reactions. How do, you react? what, how do we react in situations? Are they God-honoring? This is a road of discipleship, to do things which honor God in them. Lifestyle. Language, like taking God's name in vain by saying Jesus or Christ as a throwaway word is an offense to him. The OMG thing is taken out of context. Our language sometimes needs to change. But it's not only our language. There's those hate comments, anti-Semitic stuff, character assassination, road rage, and the usual verbal abuse that goes with it. Then there's repetitive immoral activity. There's a verse in the Bible which says, let him who steal, steal no more. Let him who steal, steal no more. But it's the same with immoral sexual activity. There are times that come when it has to stop if we are to be a true follower of Jesus. If we want to work with the grace of God in our lives, sometimes we have to consider, Lord, where does this have to stop? How can I stop it? Lord, would you give me the power and the strength to stop it? Let me honor you in my life, being a true disciple. And that we are surrounded in this world by this continual immoral sexual activity, and it has to stop for the true disciple of Jesus should stop anyway, but uh, if we want to honor him, these stop for the sake of Jesus. But just to sum that up, the writer of the Hebrews puts it like this, when we continue to offend against God, it's like crucifying Jesus all over again. Every time we make that trespass, every time we offend God by what we do, it's like nailing another nail going back in the cross. But Jesus has left the cross, and he wants to deliver, deliver us from that. He wants us. He wants us to be true followers of him.
So if you've got the Bible, you've got your thing, we go to verse 57, and we're just going to look at these three little conversations that have gone on about discipleship. I think in, in some of the Bibles, it has the little heading over the, co- over the top, the cost of following Jesus. It's easy to be a Christian and a believer mainly, but to be a disciple, it's a deeper and more powerful thing. And it's discipleship that Jesus is concerned with because when he, he gave the commission to his disciples before he went back to heaven, he said, go into all nations, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, making disciples of people. Making disciples. Are we those disciples today? So in verse 57, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It was a sort of a shallow commitment. Wherever, whatever, anyhow, I'll be there. And sometimes you get people like that. You know, quick to put the hand up, but when it comes to the reality, it's not so easy. So Jesus was saying, well, really, you ought to consider first what this following Jesus is really going to mean to you in your life. So what was Jesus saying? This would-be followers offer was sort of anywhere, anyhow, anytime, whatever. When we commit ourselves to following Jesus, the realities of home or personal comforts may not be possible or may have to take second place. So what are we prepared to go without? These are quite challenging considerations, and life just seems to get in the way sometimes, doesn't it? The businessman I know locally during his working life used to go to his office at 6 until 9 in the morning, do what paperwork was necessary, and then he gave the rest of the day to pastoral and evangelistic work and other church matters, leaving his secretary to deal with the rest. He was setting apart the time in his day to commit himself to what Jesus wanted him to do. That was for him. And sometimes we need to think, what is it going to mean for me to follow Jesus? What about those difficult things? What about those unhelpful relationships? What about those unhelpful activities? What are both those things I need to commit myself to, to follow Jesus? Shallow commitment without thought of what it really means. That was the first offer from one guy. So in verse 59, to another Jesus said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The importance of the message we take is very important. And sometimes we have to consider what is important to do as a disciple of Jesus. And this is a point where we say, Lord, what are those things that I really need to focus on 
in my life? What are those things which are unhelpful? What are those things that are not really going to be a blessing to me? This was a socially difficult thing for these Jewish people, if you like, to consider. Well, I've really got to go and do that. That's really important to bury my father. But the call of Jesus has first call on our lives. So what was Jesus saying in this conversation? It was obvious that to follow Jesus was not going to be a priority, but a procrastination. For when he was ready, at his call, in his own time. Typically, too, for a Jew, now to follow Jesus could have meant being cut out of the family or even the inheritance. Weighing up the cost of following Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. And the guy said, aha, but first let me. Let me, let me, let me. Putting Jesus in our lives as a priority in all matters in life is so important. And that's something to pray about. Sometimes there's legitimate stuff in life, but sometimes legitimate stuff keeps us away from God. And we need to know what that, what that stuff is. We need to pray about that, to seek his face in what we should do. True, intentional discipleship is what we're called to. In verses 61 and 62, there's another little conversation. And this is what it's about. The need to break association with those people and those things that would get in the way of following Jesus wholeheartedly. And we need to ask the question, looking back and the need to look forward. I'm going to look at some three things here which are in a form looking back as a disciple of Jesus. This guy said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, hold that, those who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, a true disciple has no need to look back. God's given him a purpose. God's given us a purpose. He's given us what he calls a hope. He's given us promises that help us to live, live our lives godly, that bless us and bless God too. But the true disciple has no need to look back. God has given us exceeding great and precious promises in order to take ongoing forward steps in discipleship. So what are these ways in which we might be looking back this morning? There's an Old Testament story about a lady, she's called Lot's wife. Along with her husband, was told not to look back when escaping the city which God took out by fire and brimstone. In the story, she did look back and she turned into a pillar of salt. Now, I will say that some people don't believe this story in its reality as we read it. and They use it as an analogy. Well, let's consider for a moment that it's a real story. 
the angel, or whoever helped them escape, said, don't look back. She did look back, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. She sort of disobeyed the word that was given to her. And we leave the story there. But it was really this. This morning, God is saying to each one of us, don't look back. That's a command from God. Don't look back. How can we look back? How can we be in that place of looking back and not looking forward? The first one is regrets. I think all of us may have regrets in our lives, things we did done better, big mistakes even, some of us. I've made big mistakes and stuff like that. I got a cane twice at school, but um, that was in the days of corporal punishment in schools, Mr. Benson. But you see, yeah, looking back with regrets. You know, God doesn't want to look, us to look back with regrets. He wants us to look forward. How does he want us to look forward? He wants us to look forward with rejoicing, with a sense of anticipation, with the sense that God can do more than we ask or think. That's a promise to us. Don't look back with regrets. He wants us to engage with the Holy Spirit for new directions and opportunities. What's he saying to us this morning? Open up to God. Don't keep looking back to those regrets. Open up. Throw open the shutters. Look out. God can do for you more than you can ask or think. That's an amazing promise. Don't limit God in what he can do for each one of us. Regrets. The next one is doubts. Don't look back with doubts. You say, well, what doubts are those? Doubts seem to be in the present and in the future. Well, what are you saying? Doubts like this, that because of my past, I'm a lost cause. Or really, because of the past, I'm, un I'm unable to move on or change. Or it's too late for me. There's, uh, yeah, it's too late. I've done it all, and it's too late for me to change. They're doubts we place on our life. And God wants us to move through on those doubts and deal with them. The hope that we have in Jesus is both supernatural and powerful, and it takes us and can take us beyond ourselves because it moves us forward and on. Jesus said, I have come... I have come that you, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And he wants us to claim that life this morning and move on into that abundant life that he's given. Don't be caught up with doubts. He wants you to have this life of, in all its fullness. And it's no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he can do for you. The third thing we can be looking back is in guilt. Don't entertain the burden of guilt because it's destructive. It's destructive and it journeys away from the freedoms found in Jesus. Jesus said, if the Son has made you free, you will be free indeed. 
you will be free. Like that promise, you will be free indeed. Free of guilt. If you try and seek freedom in booze or at the clairvoyance table or any other spiritual searching apart from Jesus, that is not only looking back but going back. And he wants to be us to be delivered from that. There is, Jesus said, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. We had that the other week, this wonderful thing. Satan wants us to, us to carry a burden of guilt. So don't be looking back with any sense of guilt on our lives. Reach forward and know that freedom whereby Christ has set us free. So it's just three things now about looking forward. Don't look back. Jesus said, hold on to the plough and keep your eye focused on me. Engage. Engage with church, with the Holy Spirit, and all that's happened in Beacon and from, just like the early Christians did. And this is the verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon everyone, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, and all who believed were together. We are together this morning, and that's what we need to keep in mind. They all together. They had things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a lovely picture of the early church. Are we, is that us? Is that a picture of us? Weekend community, is that a picture of us? <laughs> I know the culture's different, but the characteristics are still the same. We still live, should live in that anticipation and engaging with what God's doing all around of us. You know, that sort of commitment could make waves in Herne Bay. And so as we're engaging, just remember that March prayer month is coming up and we need to think, how am I going to engage with what God's doing? That's looking forward, engaging with what God's doing. What can I do differently in prayer month this year that I didn't do last year? Can I begin to engage with what God's doing in Beacon community? So engage. The other thing is expectation. What, what am I actually expecting? William Carey was an 18th century guy, somewhat uneducated, famously known for laying down a challenge to the 18th century church with the quote, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. He's an amazing guy, really. Somewhat uneducated. He got hold of a Greek New Testament 
and learnt Greek himself. He then went on to learn other languages, and he went to India, and he learnt all, or most of the languages in the Indian community. And he translated the Bible into those English languages. So this largely uneducated shoe repairer became a professor. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Don't see ourselves as insignificant, but what little we can do is a great thing if we do it for him. Expect great things from God. That's how we look forward. That's how we get stuck in. And we need to pray with expectation too. Pray for God to do something. You say, well, he's not interested in that. You know what? I have more prayers answered about things I've lost and God helping me to find them about anything else. God's interested in those little things. And it helps us to build the fact of expectation from what God can do for any one of us. Expect great things from God. So from expectation to engaging, one more with which I'll finish. The New Testament clearly advises Christians to eagerly await the return of the Lord Jesus. And I don't find that much in Beacon. Yes, we should be concerned about what God needs and wants us to do. But as three or four of the writers in the New Testament tell, tell us to eagerly await the return of the Lord Jesus. Oh, it's something in the future. I can't understand it anyway. It is too, I don't understand all that stuff. And I'm quite content now. I'm happy. I don't, don't need a lot. But God's going to move in on our world one day. Not quite sure when, but he's going to move in on it. He's going to move in on it with power, and Jesus is going to return. And the challenge for us as true disciples is to eagerly... That's the word that the New Testament writers use. Eagerly await the return of the Lord Jesus. Life beyond the present, looking forward. And there's one other thing which just fell on my lap just recently. And I come to it sensitively because I know that it's something that's within us, within Beacon community. I was handed to me the other day, a lovely Christian lady in Herm Bay lost her husband and she woke up in the middle of the night and uh, she kept seeing these three letters, L-A-B, sort of written across her bedroom. But she woke up in the middle of the night, L-A-B, L-A-B. And she couldn't understand what, what they meant. And eventually, God gave her the meaning of those three letters. She said, well, it's looking ahead beyond bereavement. looking forward, not looking back. I know it's sensitive, but God is as close to us as ever he can be. As a result of that, 
she started this little group and she's helping other those other people face and deal with those issues in Herne Bay. But you see, having come to sort of end in her life, God's sake gave her something to look forward to and she's able to help others in that situation. And God is helping her to do that and others are being blessed because of that. If anybody wants details about that, I can give them to you. But this is the way God wants us to move forward. There are two challenges that I believe God wanted me to bring today. And they're very quick. And then Steve will come, come back. Bob will come back and get it right. God said to me, I said, I want you to lay down a chance for two challenges this morning. And it might be one of you who thought of thinking about this. It's the challenge to become a student of the Word of God, not just a reader. There's a famine of God's Word in our day, and he wants, he wants more than one, but I'm going to lay down the challenge. He wants you to become a student. Remember William Carey? He taught himself New Testament Greek. No one taught him. He taught, he learned it himself. And he was able to translate Bibles. And God wants to help you. Don't say it's a difficult book to understand. It could be, but God wants to help you. We need theologians, if you like. We need Bible literate people today. My son asked me a question the other day. He said, what do you think about this situation? And I wrote back this to him. I said, assume, Peter, you've asked me because you're not biblically literate to be able to give the answer that you think is right. He said, yes. Well, I said, Peter, I said, I would reckon myself about 50% biblically literate. Not theologically capable, but biblically literate, knowing how to divide the word of God, knowing what are the prophets, knowing what the Psalms, know what the law. Might be a wrong assessment, but only 50%. I challenged him. I said, you can improve. Become biblically literate and become theologian. That's the first challenge. Study the word of God. It's not... It's, you're going to gain so much from it. Study the Word of God. And the other thing is that today, to engage with the Holy Spirit. I thought, well, how can I put that across this morning? Well, in the culture of uh, those Eastern culture in the Bible and, and other cultures today, even amongst the Muslim cultures and things like that, if you went to someone's house, you didn't just go to visit, say hello and go out again. You were expected to stay to eat food. And as you were expected to stay and eat food, the plate, your, plate, you know, your plate was put there, and whatever was put there, that place was for you. And you sat at that table, and you ate food, and you talked about different things. You conversed about them. And I believe that the challenge is this, that God wants you to be prayed for this morning, that you might give the Holy Spirit his place. You might be setting a place 
at the table for the Holy Spirit in your life, for him to come and spend time with you and to eat food in your life. I don't think I'll explain it any other way. It's a welcome. It's a guest welcome. It's not just the Holy Spirit of God floating about in unseen and unheard situations. He wants to be invited into your life and sit at the table and eat food with your spirit and with you. That's the challenge, and I believe God is laying them down for us today. Thank you.